Hey, good morning, church. Um, my name is Pastor Chad. If you don't know me, I, uh, I do high school and young adults here. I'm so privileged to get to uh, open God's word uh, with you uh, this morning in Pastor Ed's absence. Uh, so I guess his absence is my benefit. Um, I'm just joking. Um, anyway. I do, but thank you guys for being here, whether you're in person, whether you're online, if this is your first time, please don't like walk out of here without saying hello, talking to, to myself or one of the other pastors. We do, uh, we, we want to meet you. We want to know who you are and, and that you're here. Today, we're going to jump right into scripture. Uh, so we're going to be in Colossians chapter three. We're going to start at verse 18. We're going to go all the way to chapter four, verse one. Um, it's, not, it's not that long of a passage, uh, but let me read it uh, to y'all says this, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As I was uh, preparing for Today's sermon, I was reminded of the story of Cinderella, and I'm sure you're familiar with that story. You probably have at least seen the Disney classic movie, right? Here's this young girl. She's being oppressed by her, her wicked, evil stepmother uh, to have to like serve everybody in the house. But she gets a chance to go to this big ball that's being thrown because the prince of the kingdom is looking for a bride. And he's quite bored with all the young women except for Cinderella. He's quite taken and smitten with her. But of course, she has to get out of there before midnight. The coach turns into a pumpkin. She goes back to being uh, a servant. And he does a kingdom-wide search for her and he finds her, right? And my mind goes to the last scene as they're pulling away in that coach and the screen says, and they lived happily ever after. And the cynic in me is like, no, they didn't. They got married. <laughs> and then they had kids. And then the prince had to have that boat. So they went into debt and the castle got foreclosed on. And now they have to work jobs they don't really like to make ends meet, right? That, that sounds more like life than this happily ever after thing. It kind of makes one long for the ending of Romeo and Juliet sometimes. At least, <laughs> at least they died young and in love. So marriage, marriage isn't always happily ever after. Right? It's not always happily. Marriage is hard. Right? Having kids, as much of a blessing as they are, it's stressful. We worry about them as parents, whether we're doing a good job in parenting them. Working, going to a job day in and day out, it can be very hard to find joy in a job. But for many of us, and those three relationships right there, right? Like who we're married to, uh, our, our parent-child relationship, or like our job. That makes up so much of what our life is day in and day out. So these things are massively uh, important to us. So it makes sense that Paul focuses heavily on the family right here as he writes to the church in Colossae. He focuses on the home and really he's focusing also on people's work. 
Because that right there is where our Christianity is lived out, right? It's easy to come into church on a Sunday morning, put on our Christian mask, walk out of here, drive home, be somebody different in the walls of our home, be somebody different at work, but we should not be that way. Church, who we are here should be who we are there. Who we are there should be who we are here. It should not be any different. And I'm willing to bet that there is probably something that each one of us would like to be different about our marriage or at least about our spouse, right? There's something that we'd like to be different in our relationship with our kids or with our parents. There's something we would like to be different about our jobs. And there's a thing that I have learned about people and talking to them as they've come like to me with problems, right? People really want things to be different, but they do not want to change, right? Do you hear me? Like people, man, we, we want different, but we don't want to change. But I have, so I have news. If, if you want things to be different, you got to change. You got, you got to change. We've been in this series on the second half of the book of Colossians called Born Again and Raised. And that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about how being a Christian, how having a relationship with Jesus Christ changes us day in and day out all the way from who we are inside to how we live it out in our homes and at our jobs. And specifically today, Paul looks at our homes. He looks at our families. He looks at our work. And there's something I want to emphasize before we go into the details of today's passage. If you go back to the very beginning of chapter three, Paul opened this section of his letter like this. If then you have been raised with Christ. Seek things, the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Church, when we live with our minds set on things as above, I want you to think about it in this way. It's as though that we are reaching up to hold hands with Jesus, our Savior. All right, and then we are reaching out to hold hands with our spouse or uh, our, our child or parent or our coworker or really anybody who we come in contact with. Not in a literal sense, right? But really the closer that we are grasping to the things that are above where Christ is, the greater that should overflow into our lives, to the people beside us, right? Into our homes. And that's what we want to see as Christians. We want who we are in Christ to spill over into our homes, to our, to our spouses, to our kids. In essence, we are looking to bring our heavenly home into our earthly home. And that's what I think we can do today as we look at what Paul says. And the first relationship, if you will, that Paul addresses is the marriage relationship here he talks to wives first. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And my points today are not special because I think Paul does a really good job at making his points here. So the first point is this, Wives, submit to your husbands for Jesus. Submit to your husbands for Jesus. Now I know when we say that word submit, there is already a feeling amongst some ranging from discomfort to absolute disdain over the idea of that word and what it may entail. And on some level, today's society associates that word uh, with women being inferior to men. They associate this word uh, with controlling, domineering husbands. 
And in some cases, it's associated with abusiveness. And I know that verses like this one right here have been used to treat women cruelly. And it makes me mad because that is not the intention of what Paul is saying here. And we'll see that in the next verse when Paul says to husbands to love, but we're not there yet. Let's talk about submission, right? Submission means to line up under another's authority. Submission means to line up under another's authority. Does this mean that a husband has some level of authority over his wife? It does mean that. We can look at similar passages throughout scripture that indicate this. I'm going to give you one from Ephesians. It says in Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That means leader. That means authority, right? The, the head of. Submission, church, is what the Bible is teaching. It's not a mistake. It's not something that is just for the culture of this day as some people try to teach now. In fact, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he relates the, uh, the, the order of man and woman all the way back to creation, like a time that transcends any culture. The husband was made first, then the wife. It's not a cultural thing for that day and age. It implies to all Christians at all times and in all places. But this is not a forced authority. It is not a forced submission. Paul is not giving a command to the Christian husband to make their wife submit. In fact, the expectation is that she is submitting to a loving husband, right? Show me, show me a husband who quotes scripture like this at his wife to force her or to coerce her into submission, and I will show you a bad husband. Paul is speaking to the Christian wife and is telling her and is giving her instruction to willingly submit to her husband. And this submission, ladies, does not make you or her less in value worth or dignity than the husband. And I'll explain why. Because you are reflecting Jesus in the way that God has designed you to in marriage. Jesus, the son, willingly submitted to the father when he became human. He willingly submitted when he died on the cross. The gospel is possible because of the willing submission of God, the son to God, the father. And still, God the Son is no less God. He's no less worthy. He's no less powerful. He's still equal in majesty to the Father. Submission does not make one inferior. Submission is also not required when it means disobedience to God. Wives, you still have a greater authority than your husband, and that authority is God. And in fact, he is your reason to willingly submit to your husband. It flows from a love for God that you would. Now, how does a Christian wife submit practically to her husband? I want to give you uh, three ways, three little application points for that. The first way, respect him. Respect him. And I, I think about this often with our words and our tone, uh, especially when we're, maybe when we're speaking to him or a, about him. To not, to not speak to him or about him in a derogatory manner to, to others. Uh, that uh, the way that we convey about our husband to our friends would be one that would allow them to respect him and think highly of him as well, especially if he is a husband who is worth 
thinking highly of, but show him respect in that way. Second, allow him to lead. Allow him to lead. In the home, the husband is the leader. That is, that is what God has put him as. Allow him to lead and help him in that leading. That's what Genesis chapter 2 explicitly states that wives were made for, to be helpers to their husbands. And a wise husband will let his wife help. Right? And a wise wife will let her husband lead Let him make decisions. Help him in that decision making. Third thing for wives, encourage him. Affirm him with your words. Build him up. Thank him. Show him appreciation verbally. Do these things and bring your heavenly home into your earthly home. Paul goes on to address husbands. In verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus. Because when we think about love, we must look to the example of Jesus to see what love really looks like. Jesus gave his life for his bride, the church. Husbands, we must give our lives for our brides as well. This means a prioritization of her over us, a death to self for the benefit of our families. When Paul speaks of love here, he is not speaking to a passionate, romantic love. He's not speaking merely to the feeling of affection towards another person. Paul's talking about action here. Action, guys. He's talking about making an active choice to love that woman that you've married and to love her continually. Husbands, we are given this great responsibility because love is caring and it is considerate and it is concerned for the recipient of that love. And a loving husband does not take advantage of his submissive wife. He does not lead her to wrong or to hurt. His concern is to protect her. Now he goes on to say, do not be harsh with them. And some translations use the word embittered. And I think it's a better translation, but we won't go there. I think what happens though so often in marriage is Man, our marriages begin with a lot of expectations, like in dating and in being engaged in that newlywed phase. Like things are fun, right? And it's exciting. And then life starts kind of crashing in. And we have kids, right? And there's problems with the kids. And then there's school and there's activities and there's games and there's bills. And there's all these things of life. And we find ourselves, man, we're just like going through the motions, but we're not really living. And that kind of stress begins to create a disunity in marriages, And I think guys are more susceptible to this. From what I observe, we can quickly begin to look at our wives as a problem to be dealt with and not a person to love, right? I mean, a problem to be dealt with and not a person to love. A roommate, a person we have to just deal with. There she is again. Oh, guys, I hope we don't think like this, okay? Your wife is a person to love, not a problem to be dealt with. We are susceptible to grow in this unwanted, granted bitterness towards our wife as though she has stolen something from us. And she hasn't. Like she's a gift from God. And I guess my advice to men is that you would grow up and not be as children, but be a man. Now here's some ways that you can be a man for your wife. I'll give you three practical places. The first thing, pursue her. Pursue her. And I do not mean just sexually, okay? Pursue her. Have interest in her. 
And here's, I'll give you exactly where this, this plays out. Your wives come and they tell you a story from their day. They tell you some kind of thing that's happened. And I know how we are as men. If we don't have anything to say or to contribute, we just don't say anything at all. Right? That's not what she wants. She wants you to interact. She wants you to have something to say. Okay? So come up with something, men, and respond. All right? In responding, you show interest. All the ladies are looking at you like, let's go. Let's go. I don't know why they want that, but they do. Okay? They're not like us, and it's okay. But that is a way to pursue her, to show that interest. She thinks that you don't care. And we do care. We just don't know how to respond. But this is what you do. You ask questions. You listen. You respond. Big deal right there. Pursue her in that way. Second thing, men, that I want you to do starting today. Be first to reconcile. Be first to reconcile. Man, when there's a fight, when there's an argument, when there's a disagreement, when there's some kind of tension, guess what? As the leader of the home, you have to set your pride aside first and go to her to reconcile. Go to her to reconcile. Even if you're right. And most of the time we're probably not right, but that's okay. Sometimes we are. And we can take the lead in humility to reconcile. There's no reason to sit and simmer in division in your home. Somebody's got to make the move. Men, it ought to be you. Division, listen, that's exactly what Satan wants for your marriage. He wants you to be divided. He wants you to be against each other. That, that's what he wants. And Satan will absolutely murder your marriage with your own pride. Because that's exactly what it is. That's why we hesitate, because we're too proud. Not us men, not us Christian men. We'll set our side of pride. We'll be first to reconcile. Third thing, and guys, if you're like not taking notes, I need you to grab a pen, okay? And I want you to write this on like the palm of your hand or anywhere, okay? And this is it. It's already on the screen, I know, I think. Empathize with her. Empathy. Every guy that I talk to about relationships and marriage, that is the word, empathy. Guys, we don't do a good job at showing empathy to our wives. We're, we're bad at this. Uh, but they, they, they need it and they want it. It creates a, a closeness, empathy. Man, if it makes her sad and if she's upset about it, guess what? You're upset about it too, all right? If she gets excited about it, guess what? That's your favorite thing, all right? You are going to empathize with her. This is what I see play out in relationships. The wife has feelings that the man does not understand. Like we, we don't get it and we don't, ladies, we really don't. We are dense, okay? Women tend to process through things longer. It's not a bad thing. They like to, they like to process through things longer. Guys are like, here's your three-step process to get over it, right? Women don't want to hear about that, okay? Women want to sit in it. They want to talk about it. And they want you to empathize. They want you to feel the same thing with them. I don't understand it. I just know that it's true, okay? This right here is an opportunity to love them well and that we empathize with them. And you show her love when you empathize with her. Men, hear me. Our expressed love to our wife is more important than her submission in our homes. It is. Uh, what we do in our homes sets the foundation for everything else that happens here. God has put a, a greater responsibility and will hold us to a higher standard. It is our responsibility, guys. It is your responsibility. 
All right, do this and bring your heavenly home to your earthly home. Now, Paul goes on to address the parent-child relationship. If you thought we were already having fun, we're just getting started. No, I'm kidding. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents like you're obeying Jesus. Uh, The word obey here means that when you're told to do something, you do it. When you're told not to do something, you don't do it. When there's something that you know that you're supposed to do, you do that thing. It's not, it's not that deep. It's just simple obedience, okay? Obedience to parents is obedience to God. Obedience to parents is obedience to God. Unless obedience to the parent is explicitly disobedience to God. Obedience. I think it's also important that we talk about children and define who that is. It's not an age-specific word here. It really constitutes any child living in the home under their parents' guidance and guardianship. All right. Many times people reach the age of 18 and they feel like verses like this, that doesn't apply to me. I'm an adult. Yippee. Yo. Okay. But young, young adult people in the room, if you are living under your parents' guidance and guardianship, it is God's expectation of you that you will also show them honor and obedience. In fact, all kids everywhere, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, it is that you obey your parents first and foremost, as hard as that is. Now listen, kids, I know that some of you have turned off your ears to me, but don't, as I want you to hear how important uh, this is to God. All right, in Romans chapter 1, 28 to 31, it says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Here it is right here. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Why do I point this out? Because in this list of like absolute evil, murder, inventors of evil, ruthlessness, heartlessness, all this stuff is also disobedience to parents. God takes this seriously. Like what's up, God? I don't like that. Come on now, right? God takes this seriously for a reason. Obedience to parents is what teaches a child obedience to God, right? The first way that a child born into a Christian family is going to relate to and understand God and who he is and what is expected of them by God is through their parents. And we know that God wants us to grow in obedience to him, but he starts that for a child in the home, right? And in the moment, we're gonna come back to parents because you guys are not getting off the hook. But I want to give something practical to, to kids, okay? So listen, please, children, because Pastor Chad loves you, right? First thing, obey immediately, talk about it later, all right? Obey immediately, talk about it later. Now, I know what happens in the home when you're doing one thing and your parent asks you to do something else. Ugh. 
how could they violate you in that way? I, I know, I know what's going on inside the heart. Like you're going one direction. You have one thing that you're focused on and you think that you have a right to be focused on that thing. And suddenly they're asking you to do something else and it is annoying, aggravating, and irritating. You feel like sometimes, man, it's not fair they're making me do this thing at this moment. All right? But obey immediately, talk about it later. Because here's what happens when you respond in that uh, way. All right? Your parents aren't happy. And then we're exploding. All right? And that's World War III inside of our home. Let's stop that now. Please, everybody, please. Let's not do that. Man, we'll take care of 85% of the problems and we can just do this thing right here. Obey immediately and talk about it later. I do think it's okay at a later time, parents, please allow your kids to do this, to come to you and talk about ways in which they may feel like you have, I, I don't like the way I'm saying this, okay? Uh, you have um, hurt them, okay, in, in some way, okay? Uh, it may not be justified, but listen, but listen, okay? Second, kids, have grace for your parents, have grace for your parents. They will make mistakes. They are people, right? Uh, I, I, I guarantee you, your parents sit up at night and, and they talk to each other about their parenting and they're worried about it. Do we make a mistake here, right? What if we had done this thing differently? They worry about you. They are concerned about you. A good way to be able to have grace for them is that you recognize or believe that they have your best interest at heart. The, for most people, your parents are not out to get you. They're not out to do you wrong or harm. They, sure, they may make a mistake, but it's not from a place of, of ill will, right? They're really thinking of your best interests. Believe that about them. That's how we show love to them and have grace for them in that. Third thing, kids, that I ask you to do to apply this, be quick to recognize you're wrong and apologize when you disobey. All right. When you have sinned and disobeyed your parents, it is always good to go to them, acknowledge the wrong, acknowledge what the wrong was, ask for forgiveness and accept the consequence without whining. Be quick to recognize you're wrong and apologize when you disobey. Do this and bring your heavenly home into your earthly home. Well, then Paul moves on to parents. All right, he says this, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I simply say this, parents, raise your children for Jesus. Raise your children for Jesus. The command on the child to be obedient is followed by a command on the parent to not be difficult to obey. The word provoked here can mean to exasperate, to stir up, to irritate. And when children are treated this way, they do become discouraged, which in some translations says to lose heart. It indicates a lack of spirit. It indicates a lack of drive, a sullenness, a despair. Now, parents, we often do not realize the places where we are provoking our kids to discouragement. Right? Because as parents, uh, we're trying to do what we think is right. We're trying to guide them. And we judge ourselves by our intentions. And then our kids are outside of those intentions and they're judging us by the outcome of the intention, right? So where we as parents see giving good advice, the kid sees a lecture, right? And you're like, man, I should make, what, do I, what am I supposed to do, right? What, what, do I, what do I do, Pastor Chad? It's like, I just can't win. So let's acknowledge something. Parenting is hard. 
Parenting is hard. There's not always this cut and dry and an easy answer to every single situation. It's hard. It is a marathon, right? Not a sprint. Because on one hand, right, we can provoke our kids to discouragement by being too strict, by always being on top of them for everything, but not letting them do this or that or anything else. We just crush them and we crush them. And on the other hand, we can provoke them to discouragement by being too lenient, by giving them everything they want, by fulfilling their needs and making them happy and making sure they're okay and all those kind of things. Both sides can lead to discouragement in our kids. Here's some ways that I think that we do this that are a little bit more predominant, all right? One, devaluing their feelings. We devalue their feelings. Just wait until you're an adult. Then you'll understand. I don't know if you've ever said that, but sometimes like we, we see children and their problems and we're like, give me a break. I mean, you don't even know what hard is yet, all right? And that may, that may be the case, but they are feeling that in every sense of the way that we may feel stressed too. Right? And to make comments and remarks like that, you are shutting your kid down. You say that when your kid comes to you with the thing, you've lost them. You've lost them, parents. Don't devalue their feelings. You will lose the ability as a parent to guide them when you do that. Second thing where we provoke our kids, hypocrisy and inconsistency. Right? The do as I say, not as I do parenting method. It's really bad. It, it, will, it will not work. Uh, not even God acts like that. Right? God made a law. He put on flesh. He came down. He lived out that law. Do as I say, not as I do does not work. Your children see what you do. Oh, they see it. When your actions do not match your words, you will lose their respect. It's important that we're consistent with what we teach. Third thing, and kind of the biggest point I want to make, right? Expectations and standards and perfectionism, parents. All right, I'm going to say a couple of things on this. First, expectations and standards should be at the level of that kid, right? Children are different. Some are more intelligent. Some are more athletic. Some are good musicians. Some are artists. Some are super quiet, but man, they are the kindest, best friend in the world. Doesn't matter who they are, whatever they are like, there is value in who they are. It'd be amazing if the parent's job was to find what that thing was and to help it grow, all right? If your child doesn't have straight A's in the fourth grade, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. I, I'm going to tell you something, parents. Kids are stressed out by parental expectations. I know this because they tell me they are. I'm going to tell you something, parents. They are afraid to talk to you about it. I know this because they tell me that. They're stressed out by that. But here's what I really want to say. In some cases, the expectations and standards of families are not right. I want you to think really fast. If you are a parent, what do you want most for your children? What's the thing that comes to mind when you see their future? Is it, is it, is it college? Is it success? Is it money? Is it that? There's so many things that we can think of parents. If the first thing in our mind is not that they know, love, and live for Jesus, we have a prioritization problem. We have a prioritization problem. Christian parents, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. This is what Paul is telling us to do. 
So here's some application points for, for Christian homes right now. One, prioritize God in the home. Prioritize God in the home. I hope so much that like God is a conversation topic in your home, at your table, right? That somehow a family is centered on that. That maybe even you read God's word together. You memorize scripture together. You sing songs like we sing in church. That God is a, is a priority in the home. Why? Because the greatest good for that child is that they know Jesus. It's not that they do well in school. It's not that they play that sport. It's not that they have that job. It's not. That's just life. That's short. Eternity is long. The greatest good for that child is that they know Jesus. Second thing, find common interests with your children. Okay. When we do that, when we find like, oh, here's something my kid likes and I'm going to do that thing with him. All right. We win our child's heart to ourselves and we actually win the opportunity to influence their lives in a different way. All right. So find a common interest with your child. Third thing, parent with the gospel. Parent with the gospel. Man, a Christian parent should look for ways throughout the day in every conversation to bring things back to Jesus. Oh, what is the gospel? What, what, what does grace have to do with the situation? It comes out a lot in discipline, right? If we just discipline our kids, if there's just punishment and then there's no conversation and there's no grace and there's no scene about God's forgiveness, right? And that, that doesn't come up in the conversation. We're missing out on an opportunity. There is a, there's a book in the resource center by Paul David Tripp called Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Will Influence the Way You Parent, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, it's really good. It's really helpful in perspective shifting. It paints this, like parents, those children are not yours. They're God's. They've been given to you for a while to do something with. You are an ambassador of heaven to those kids. Parent like that, parent with the gospel. Do this and bring your heavenly home to your earthly home. Now, finally and lastly, it's our jobs. Right, we kind of go out of the home, we get into the workplace. Uh, and, and it says this in 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Uh, employees work like it's for Jesus. Uh, this can be a touchy place in scripture uh, because some translations use the word slave for bond servant. And, and that word slave conjures up all kinds of images in our mind of what slavery looks like. Now, culturally, Paul is not speaking to that kind of slavery that we think about when we hear the word. In this situation, people were selling themselves into servitude for the sake of paying off debt to a person. Were they mistreated? Well, they must have been because Paul's addressing it here, okay? And I'm not being dismissive of any of that, but it's not the main point of the text, and I want to stick on to the point. And so we kind of relate it to our jobs. Work is not a bad thing, okay? Work is a gift given by God. In fact, Adam worked the garden before sin ever entered the world. And I know many times work can make us miserable, it's not what we want to do. We may long for a career change. We may want to make more money. People we work with may be difficult. The customers we serve may treat us poorly. We may hate our boss. But Christian person, listen, we don't work for any of them or any of that, right? We work for the Lord. You don't work for you. 
for the boss, for the, for the shareholder, for the customer, man, you work for the Lord. And when your job is a way of serving and worshiping him, when you work hard as though it is for him. And if you're someone with people in your employer working under you, treat those people well. They're people. I know the stress of running a business and meeting demands is hard, but let's put people over production. Three ways quickly to help with that. One, see each person as Jesus sees them. Every person we come in contact with was made by God. They're made in his image. It's a person Jesus loves. It's a person he died for. That's who that person is. See them that way. Think of them that way. Second, view work as an opportunity for the gospel. Man, if you, if you work out in the secular world, all right, you're like, you're like frontline missions right there. You have a chance to talk about Jesus every day. You should pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus. You should pray that your coworkers would ask you a question because they know already that you're a Christian by the way they live, you live your life. Right? But view work as an opportunity for the gospel. And third, give of what you earn. You want to redeem a job that you don't like, right? Tie it to your church and give to organizations that are kingdom growing. Do this and bring your heavenly home to your earthly home. I think it's fitting how he concludes this in four one to masters when he says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. No matter what our authority or our power or our influence is on earth, there is one person that everybody answers to and that person is God. And so here's what I, here's what I ask you today. Here's what I invite you to do, a Christian person. What needs to be different? in marriages, in the parent-child relationship, at work? What needs to be different? And then what are you going to change? What needs to change? Husbands, what do you need to change so you can love your wife as God is commanding you to love her? Wives, what do you need to change so you can submit to your husbands as God commands? Children, what do you need to change so that you can obey your parents, parents, what do you need to change? What needs to change? How can we live differently with our minds set on heaven so that we can bring our heavenly home into our earthly home? I don't want you to walk out of here without some kind of commitment to that change. I and mean, if you're sitting next to your wife or your children, what an opportunity to just say to them, something needs to change and commit to maybe talking about it this afternoon with them. I invite you to do that today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I pray that you give us your power to change. We can't change on our own and we need Jesus. And I pray that he becomes enough of a motivation to do that today, God. Lord, if, if families, if homes would be different and live for him, it would change our world, Lord. God, I ask you to make that happen today. It's in his name we pray, amen.